Hello and welcome to the 2020 iteration of Leaves Festival of Writing and Music, Leaves On Air. This festival would usually take place at Dunamay's Arts Centre and other venues across Portleash and County Leash. Current circumstances, however, forced a rethink about how we could best bring featured writers, musicians and our audiences together in a safe, engaging and entertaining way. Together with Leash Arts Office, we are delighted to now present a series of podcasts featuring our guest musician, our guest writers in conversation with festival curator Dermot Bulger. These were recorded recently over Zoom. For more details, see leavesfestival.ie and you can find us on all social media, Spotify and other podcast hosts. Leaves on Air is funded by the Arts Office Leash County Council and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre. Welcome to the Leaves on Air podcast series. My name is Dermot Bulger. My guest in this episode is the writer Marianne Lee, talking about her acclaimed debut novel, A Quiet Tide, a fictionalised account of the life of Ellen Hutchins, Ireland's first female botanist who collected and discovered rare species of plants while walking in isolation in West Cork. While most Irish women whose names survived from the early 19th century are recalled only as appendages to the lives of famous men, women like Sarah Curran or Anne Devlin, Ellen Hutchins is a remarkable exception. Despite living in isolation, being burdened by needing to care for an elderly mother and invalid brother, and contemptuously treated by her elder brother as a chattel to be moved about at his will, Hutchins became a renowned identifier and illustrator of plants, respected by male peers, many of whom she never got to meet due to her lack of independence and familial duties. A Quiet Tide is published by New Ireland, available from newisland.ie. Marion Lee grew up in Tullamore County Offaly and now lives in Dublin with her husband. She has a degree in visual communication from the National College of Art and Design and MPhil in creative writing from Trinity College Dublin. She works as a designer and copywriter and has published a selection of poetry and self-recorded an album. The Leaves Festival in Leash, from which this podcast series grew is synonymous not only with great literature, but also great music. To introduce my talk with Marion, I have chosen two reels, The Rainy Day and The Bunch of Keys, played by the great Watford Piper David Power on his album The 18 Maloney, available from his website, davidpowerup.com. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ryan, welcome, welcome to the uh, Leaves on Air podcast. It's lovely to have you. It's, it's, it's been, I've been wanting to meet you ever since I read uh, Quiet Tide, which is a quite remarkable book. Uh, it's a book that I, I shouldn't have liked because I, I know nothing about botany. I know nothing about flowers. I know nothing about that sort of world. And yet you took a world that was totally hidden to me uh, and you made it very, very real. And you took a person who was hidden to me. And what's interesting about uh, Irish women in the uh, early 19th century uh, was that they'd, uh, if they remembered at all, except maybe say uh, Maria Edgeworth for Castle background, although she had published that anonymously, they remembered as appendages of women, like um, I'm thinking of Sarah Curran and, and Devlin, their links to Robert Emmett. But um, Ellen Hutchins is totally, um, you know, she, she's lived on through her, even though she was often just known as the lady from Bantry in correspondence, even though she was so isolated, so she never got to meet many of the botanists that she um, sent letters to and sent specimens to. She actually sort of um, created her own space and, and is re remembered today. And uh, how did you come upon uh, Ellen's life and, and what made you want to do this act of literary ventriloquism and really bring her back to life? Well, I, I'm very interested in that period of Irish history. So I think that's what, that's what really sparked it. I had, you know, I'd been writing for a couple of years, trying short stories, trying different forms. And I was finding it difficult to find my own voice. And I thought I would try something new. And it, it just came to me that I would, I was very interested in that time period, very interested in the architecture, very interested in the whole aesthetic of the early 1900s. From that, I'd started doing some research on, maybe some of the lesser known characters. And at that stage, I was really looking for inspiration, maybe for a completely fictional character. Mm. I wasn't necessarily looking um, to do an imagining of, of a real person at all. Um, and I think I would have been very intimidated had I decided to do that from the outset. And I came across Whitley Stokes, who is, um, mm. was a real person and is a character in the book. And he becomes Ellen Hutchins's ward. And he was a very remarkable, interesting character in his own right. Um, involved with the United Irishmen. He was a lecturer in Trinity College and he was um, a renowned botanist at the time. And there was a whole movement of amateur botany mm -hmm. um, all over the world and including Ireland. Um, and th through finding out about Whitley Stokes and Harcourt Street, um, I then found mention of Ellen Hutchins and immediately it just totally captured my imagination. And, and it was initially this idea of a young woman coming into an existing domestic environment and the dynamic of that. So I suppose, you know, maybe what's apparent having written the book is what I'm very interested in is the dynamics between people, particularly in a family domestic setting. And just, to, just to explain to listeners, like Ellen has a family. She has an invalid yes. mother. She, <laughs> she has an elderly mother. She has an invalid brother whom she has to, whom she is dispatched back to Bantry to, yes, uh, to look after. But like, her, she's like a, a chattel to her eldest brother, who's also yes. heavily involved in, in politics at the time, who yeah. simply moves her around. And so she spends a lot of her childhood in uh, a school in mm -hmm. sort of, so she's totally isolated. And then she's taken out of that school and she goes back to Harcourt Street to uh, Stokes' home. And she really begins to open it. He, he, he's a very humane character. Yes. Uh, and she finds a, a niche for herself. She mm -hmm. finds a home for herself. Mm -hmm. She finds a surrogate family for herself in the family. And then she finds that she has a very, very brilliant brain. 
and that she finds this sort of uh, way to express it in uh, taking an interest in in his and then in, in in botany in his passion, which becomes her passion, and then just when she has that measure of a settled life, her, her butter turns up and dispatches her back to Bantry, yeah. and she's living in total isolation there, and she needs to begin again. Yeah. So again, you know, looking for a story, and it almost immediately the arc of Ellen's life seemed to me to suggest, you know, the arc of a novel, as in it had this rise and fall and rise and fall and how she managed really to make the best of whatever situation she was put in. I think she was highly adaptable. And I think women of the time, as women maybe always, have had to be extremely adaptable and make the best of the situation that they're in. And I mean, her situation with her oldest brother, I mean, he's an interesting character. I mean, that just would have been very typical of the time, that if you didn't have money of your own, if you weren't married, then you were, in, you were under the control of the male members of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, and Emmanuel, her oldest brother, was de facto her father. He was the paternal figure because her mm-hmm. father had died when she was two years of age. So, yeah, again, I mean, the, the, there were so many elements of the story that appealed to me. One of the things I liked was this suggestion that, as set against the patriarchy of the time, there were these male figures who were extremely helpful to her and extremely positive figures in her life. And I liked this sort of um, challenge to our perception of maybe, you know, this idea that all men of this period were the enemy of women. I mean, that's not actually, you know, true. They were, they were living within the environment of the time the same. And many men, of course, would have suffered under the very strict class and, Absolutely, yeah. You know, um, what's interesting is uh, again, again, because there's, there's there's politics brewing in the background, but but you're very careful to keep it sort of in the background because it, it yes. only affects her. But like these are men who are passionate about botany. It's a new world, and and it crosses divides. It, it crosses. I mean, the, many people are in England, and that, that that's a great tragedy of her that she never gets to meet many of the people who really begin to recognize a remarkable spirit in her and on the one occasion when some english botanists do track her down it is another brother who is home yes. who takes it upon himself to go out and yeah. show him all the places that she has discovered and again she's pushed back in into the background yeah that's just the tragedy of the limitations really of, of just how society was set up and you know all this you know to us, nonsense, but you know, to them, they took it very seriously, this idea that women could not go about with um, strange men who were not their family members and so on. Um, so, you know, but again, the, the, the idea that a lot of her friendships were based on correspondence, um, I found that very romantic and very interesting because it was another challenge in the book to explore that developing friendship through the medium of letters. And I mean, there, there are existing letters which are not, I don't quote in the book, um, they're be- very beautiful letters and you can trace the development of her friendship with this very interesting uh, botanist Dawson Turner who was based in Yarmouth um, in England and so the letters start out very dry where it's just literally um, exchanging details about plants and so on and their findings and as each one senses a symp- sympathetic ear particularly Ellen gets a sense that Dawson Turner is this extremely nice, um, sympathetic person. And she opens up and begins to reveal details of her family. So what I tried to do in the book was maybe look at the layer below that again then, and some of the things that aren't said in the letters and how what Ellen, the, the things Ellen would love to have said to Dawson Turner had she been able to meet him in person or had 
were things different? Were, were men and women able to speak to each other? Um, so yeah, I've, something I'm very interested in is how people find ways of communicating with each other when there are these limitations and blocks and how often that actually leads to a, a, an even deeper um, and I, level of... Uh, letters with Dostone are very interesting. Uh, if someone he doesn't know, but they gradually friendship. But then like, there's floating in the background as well, there's her letters to her childhood friend. Yes. And her childhood friend goes to uh, Kildare and is like forced into a marriage, mm. unsuitable, that's uh, very, very happy and dies. Mm. And so there is this thing that uh, although, although uh, Ellen winds up uh, dying before her 40th birthday and her grave is unmarked for two centuries, that uh, th even when life went the way it was meant to go in the sense that, that you were meant to marry and have children, it, 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 you, you were equally powerless and it could be equally tragic. Yeah, and Caroline is a totally, well, she's one of the few totally invented characters in the book. And I, I mean, she very naturally occurred. I mean, that I had seen, I had a whole chapter with Ellen in, set in the school, which I subsequently cut because it just wasn't really adding anything to the development of the story. But Caroline survived the cut and Caroline just very naturally popped up because, you know, you're thinking young girl, young girls have these very intense friendships. And then I realized that Caroline was an interesting device almost to explore what the alternative life for Ellen might have been. As you say, had she achieved what would have been considered, you know, what would have been expected of her, which would be to marry and have children, which is what the expectation of women. And when that happened for Caroline, it didn't end very well. And by the end of the book, perhaps people might think that Ellen, uh, you know, did the better of the two and Ellen had the more fulfilled, interesting life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Caroline, yeah, and, and, and Caroline is quite, a, in, in her own way, at the, initially she, she seems quite a surface, superficial character. Mm. But again, through letters as the book develops, um, I think she reveals layers to herself as well. So it's this whole idea of the internal life of the mind and how uh, beyond, you know, what, what, what we don't want these cut out characters. We want, we want them to have layers. And we well, want they them have to have blood and they have a sense of really vividly coming, coming alive on the page. And I remember... Uh, being in a hotel in London in I don't know when and getting a photocopy of the first short story written by David Park, the um, novelist from Northern Ireland, who is a writer I usually admire. And I knew within like a page that here was a remarkable writer and he's gone on to produce these beautiful quiet books. And, and whenever I meet an academic abroad, and they talk about what I was writing. I asked them about David Park, and I judge their intelligence from how they respond to David Park. And reading A Quiet Tide, within, within two or three pages, again, there was that sense, again, of meeting somebody who was a perfectly formed writer. And I know that, that you've written poetry and that you're a songwriter as well, and so all those mediums are there. But the actual quality of the prose was absolutely beautiful. And I'd love it if you read a small ex extract from the book, just to give yes. a of that. Yeah. So in this section, Ellen is living in Ballylicky. She's back in Cork. And after a, a, a rocky start and a bit of a struggle, she's sort of finding her, her way. And one of the things she does is she establishes um, her own garden at this, at this house in Ballylicky. And the location of the house is still there. It's not the original house, but it's very similar in style. But it's, as I said, very similar to the original location. And it faces the sea, very close to Bantry Bay, facing the sea. So she wants to establish this little garden and she's speaking here to Dan, who is the male um, servant of the family. She asked Dan if there would be any objection to using the small field close to the house for a garden. 
I don't know, miss, Dan said. We give the fowl the run of it. And you can still if we keep them away from the seeds. Best to check with the master. Jack had no objection, though he asked, what type of garden? Salads, herbs, she said. Also ornamental plants, shrubs, flowers. I'd like to experiment. With the climate here, I hope I'll have luck, as Arthur has had at Ardnagashel. Winter had again been exceptionally mild. Linen had been hung outside to dry on Christmas Day, a marvel. I wonder at your having time, he said, or energy. He rubbed at his legs. While I must sit here, no help to you at all. You still run the farm, she said. His face had slumped into a scowl. Best not to indulge him, but smile, say cheerfully. Wouldn't it be pleasant to have fresh greens by summer? He agreed it would. In the end, he shrugged. By all means, sister, make your garden. Kate will be delighted to hear you found another way of soiling your dresses. She drew a plan, organising beds for different planting, interspersing rows of edible plants with perennial flowers and shrubs. Mr Mackay, with whom she now regularly swapped parcels and letters, sent seeds and promised to send bare root roses. She plotted and dreamed of a pleasant space close to the house where she could spend hours of leisure, a haven of scent and colour. Roses, lavender, herbs of all kinds, sorrel, lovage, sage, rosemary. That's some time away, Miss Dan said. A garden takes many years. He wiped sweat from his face with a soiled square of fabric, then squirreled it away in his jacket pocket. She'd agreed with Jack not to take the servants away from their work, but every time she set foot in the field, Dan appeared with a spade over his shoulder. I know it, she said, but now I've made a start, it will be something to aspire to. Time is something I have. He glanced over at her, frowned, and bent his back again into the digging. Arthur visited and was admiring. You've made great progress. A glass house is what you need next. Start your seeds earlier, extend the season. It need not be elaborate. A basic wooden frame. And, of course, the glass. Would that not be costly? It can be managed. I'd rather you had some shelter when working. You seem to spend an inordinate amount of time outdoors. I like it. Still, you should take care not to catch chills. He took out a large, snowy white handkerchief, coughed discreetly into it. Ellen wondered if a preoccupation with health were not partly the cause of Arthur's malaise, which appeared vague in nature, a general fatigue, a sapping dispiritedness. You look well, she said encouragingly. Oh, he smiled, sniffed. Well, it's one of my good days, I admit. My doctor wishes me to take the water at Harrogate, if I can find time. A fortnight later, a cart arrived. Two men descended and announced they were there on Mr. Arthur Hutchins's orders. They unloaded lengths of wood, tenderly packed sheets of costly glass. Once the skeletal frame had been erected, it took them but a day to transform the airy box into a snug, transparent cocoon that glittered in the sun. Cunning windows could be opened to control the flow of air and ensure she could work without becoming too uncomfortable in the heady warmth. Ballylickey, April the 10th, 1807. Arthur, I am quite delighted with the glass house. My new plants advance at an astonishing rate. It has become home for an extraordinary number of beetles and other creatures, which also thrive in the jungle-like atmosphere. We find it impossible to keep the yard cats out. They so love the heat. Affectionately yours, E. Hutchins. 
The seeds sent by Mackay sprouted to trefoils, growing daily under her care. She might have once described herself as placid or passive. This had been only a kind of suspension, a preserving of energy. When necessary, she could be single-minded, as the green spikes that poked through the soil after months in the dark. The gentle days of late spring arrived. Evening stretched forward, dark retreated. The house warmed up. Not so difficult now to get out of bed, squat over the chamber pot and stand at the basin, sluicing face, body, legs and feet with a wet cloth. Hurry to dress in front of the window with a view to the sea. The garden began to be tamed, came to life. New smells, green, cool, unutterably fresh, as moisture pulsed off the new grass and unfolding leaves. It's lovely. It's when it is a garden as a declaration of independence. Yes, it? yes. Finding a way to create that sort of space. And, and it, it, she goes in this book from being very, very meek, and she's, her health is never very, very good, but, 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 but she has just an extraordinary determination. She reminded me of Beatrice Potter in the sense of, at the end of, of Beatrice Potter's life, she was storming around the hills, getting, you know, creating this, this whole world for herself, having had a very, very constrained childhood. And uh, there is a sense of, of, of going out, of the locals being totally bewildered. At one stage, they think that she must be a spy because they can't figure out why anybody is going out and looking at, at these things. And there's, it's a book that's bereft of minor characters. Everybody is very, very fully formed. That relationship between not only between her and the local people, between her and the servants in the house the, who, who share, um, they, they, they could all be put out at the mercy of the elder brother. So, 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 so that even though there's a class divide, they actually are linked by fear of, 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 of by, by basically not having any, any rights. I've written novels that are purely fictional. I've written novels that are based on real people, more recent people than 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 you in, in the family of power experience and arc of light. Uh, and I found quite to, to write an ordinary novel is to be judged by the living, by critics, reviewers, everything else. To write a book like this is to be judged by the living and the dead. Uh, and, and what do you think that um, Ellen Hutchins and her family would make of this book? Yeah, that's a very interesting question and it's something, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and it raised all kinds of questions um, and it still does. It's a very interesting, um, it's very interesting to, you know, to, to, it's something you have to balance up and something you have to consider. I mean, obviously you could say these people are all long dead over 200 years um, and therefore you can sort of do what you like and I don't really think that's true or fair for, for lots of different reasons. I mean, I could have written a book based on Ellen Hutchins and given her a different name and given her, and it would have made life easier in some ways, but I felt that would be a double um, injustice in a way, you know, to be, to be written out and, and to take her, to steal her life and steal the sort of beauty and romance and arc of her life. And then uh, just put somebody else's name on it. And um, of course, as soon as you use a real name, uh, you've, you've an extra responsibility in terms of um, accuracy and truth and all of these things. And then you have to try and balance that against the storytelling. So it, it's something that I, 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 I was working on up to the very, very end and mm -hmm. something I'm still conscious of. I got a great deal of help and support from Ellen's um, ancestors. And um, I hope that they were pleased. I mean, I try, I, the main thing I think is to be, to, is to be respectful. Um, you can't mm -hmm. be afraid of going to some, some darker places. And I felt I did try and do this with the book. I tried to present her as 
a completely three-dimensional woman with you know thoughts and feelings I mean, you know you, you might you know you look up you look up Ellen Hutchins online you're going to get a certain a certain um presentation of somebody you know, and, and we would think maybe of sort of a Jane Austen character with a pretty frock and a basket and somebody but but when I really thought about it I thought of somebody who must have really been made of very stern stuff and she was climbing mountains and in all kinds of horrendous weather like I always say there was no Gore-Tex then and she had to find ways all around that and I think she did have extraordinary determination but but even things like you know feelings of of sexuality feelings about desire and I mean as soon as you start writing about botany I did a lot of research on the whole issue of feminism and botany and how botany was um, a very loaded um, science, you know, and it, up, up until the late 18th century, there was a very heavy debate in science whether women should be allowed to have anything to do with botany because Linnaeus had come along and invented all this extremely loaded terminology, you know, to do with the genders and all these things and then finally they said well you know we think on balance we, we, we can allow women like we think we don't you know we think they're we think they can cope and we don't think it's going to completely um corrupt them so we'll allow women so but but that led me to ideas about ellen herself as a single unmarried childless woman she herself must have been aware of some of the you know contradictions in the fact that she you know, issues of sexuality could not come up or ever be discussed. And yet she was using, as I say, quite graphic terminology in terms. So all of these things were just very interesting and added different different layers and made the character more interesting. But yeah, no, it, it is a responsibility um, to base a book on a real person. And I think you can neither ignore those responsibilities nor allow them to... They, they, they can't take yeah. over. And I think you do justice to every character and even even the dastardly uh, elderly yeah, woman. Poor has his own burdens and has mm. secrets and has involvements with, you know, Irishmen and mm. things in the past that, 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 that shape him and, and that's also there. I remember, it reminded me also of reading a proof copy of Death and Nightingales by the oh, late... I love that book. Who passed away. And it reminded me, because it was a Victorian novel mm. that the Victorians couldn't write. Yes, you know I mean? yes. It, very it, well put. It, yeah, it, 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 and so this is and is this is the the novel that Maria Edgeworth couldn't write, even though she wrote a great exactly. novel. So because yeah. it is it is a twenty fourth century take on what couldn't be said in the yes. time. So, but but is it also in some in some ways? Do you feel it's also a contemporary novel as well? That it's about the real world. That's about about us now as well. That that there is that there's uh, parallel elements to the book. Well, obviously, I mean, at the moment, all these all these issues about isolation and how we cope with isolation and how we try and manage um, unpalatable situations that we find ourselves in and situations that are outside our control and how we really, you know, how, how, how do we how do we cope? How do we restructure ourselves? How do we rethink things? How do we try and put how do we try and find positivity? I mean, that is something I related very strongly to in the book. And I found that, you know, very easy um, to relate to somebody in that situation and think okay well how is she how is she going to manage this how is she going to not actually go crazy living in extreme isolation I mean Ballylicky even today is extremely isolated but back then you know weeks could pass before you would see anybody mm -hmm. so there's that but I think there's also you know the bigger issue of um this idea of of limiting whole segments of you know her world like so it, it at her t in, in Ellen's time it was it was women 
you know, that we think of first when we think of women, we're, we're told you can't go to university and um, you can't do so many things that a man can do. I just saw this morning a very interesting cartoon of um, women in the House, House of Lords being allowed to peer through these little these yeah. little windows to look at what was going on because they, it was considered, you know, they couldn't be allowed actually into the galleries. Mm. Um, but I suppose now there are different, different segments of society and, we, and we're still saying, you know, you can't do this. Mm. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. And, and how damaging it is as a society because what we're doing is we're cutting off this talent pool. Mm. You know, it was, it was so um, self, you know, self-limiting as, as, as a society to say that all of these great minds you know, but we were going to just cut them out and say, you know, you can, you have nothing to contribute, mm-hmm. and you know, it's so so so. What, what, what was damaged ultimately was society itself, and so yeah. So there's there there, there were many things. I mean, I, I it's 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 lovely that you've mentioned death and nightingales. There were two books which I had on my desk, and I would when I got stuck or when I thought, you know what should I be aiming for here? So one of them was Death, Death and Nightingales. And I try and read that book once a year because I just think it is just absolutely exquisite. And there's a beautiful TV adaptation. I don't know if you've seen it. I have it, yes, yes. It's very, very well done. Very nicely done. And really gets the tone. Um, and then the other book is The Blue Flower by Penelope Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. um, and she's a favourite writer of mine. And that book, um, in my opinion, is possibly, it's a very, very short book, but it's one of the finest historical fiction novels and again she gets that that sense of she's she's managing to um speak in the language of the time Mm -hmm. which is very attractive to us because we that's arcane and it's so interesting but yet there is this there is this modernity to it there's a there's a there's an energy in it Mm -hmm. that we can relate to and she just does it very beautifully and and this this idea of taking um a, a, a 2d her book is also based on a real character and taking somebody who's just 2D and, and breathing life into that, into that person. She does it very well. You talk about Ellen living in isolation. I mean, this novel, of course, is a perfect novel. It's a perfect pandemic read because it's about somebody who copes with the fact that, that they are going to be on their own and that they have to create their own sort of world. But there's the isolation that she has as a woman in the years when she's living. But there's also a curious isolation that when you are in the middle of writing a novel, no one reads the novel, only you, mm-hmm. uh, until it gets to a certain stage, maybe. But but it's a private world that you're that that you're locked in, and that it begins to actually um, haunt you. And because nobody else knows, but and did you find that Ellen began to haunt your dreams? That that that, that, that sort of you actually almost had this physical, tangible relationship with her until the book was finished. If that makes any sense. Yes, and when I wrote this book, I. I honestly never thought anybody else would read it, you know, mm-hmm. so, and I actually, I think that's possibly, that's possibly a, a position of strength, possibly when you're writing a novel, because mm-hmm. you're totally free. It doesn't, you can make mistakes and you can try and work things out because you're thinking, well, nobody's going to judge this except myself. Um, I did, I mean, I actually started, there were, there were days when I sat down and I would start writing in the first person until I remembered that I had made a decision to write in the third person. Um, and I, I mean, at the start of the book, and I suppose this is, this is another an interesting challenge is when you have a character who might be perceived from the outside as a passive character. Mm-hmm. And I did a bit of reading on, you know, passive, and we're obviously told never have passive characters and you can't. Have, but I mean, Ellen as a woman at the time was by definition, you know, passive. And they were actually taught mm-hmm. in school, whatever schooling they would have had, they would have been encouraged to be passive and mm-hmm. to not express opinions. And there's a little bit of that in the book. 
And then as the book went on, so yeah, I had to work out how am I going to make this uh, quiet person? And she does come across in the letters as a quiet, modest person. And how am I going to give her strength? And how, how am I going to, and it was in all those little, those little day-to-day domestic dramas that her personality started to come out. And I suppose I'm the oldest of six children. So Ellen is the second youngest of a large family, but I'm, I'm used to that large family dynamic and things always happening. And there always been some sort of minor crisis and how the different, you know, the dynamics within the family, how people react and so on. So it was almost through that more so than the botany that she really gained strength um, and how she held the family together, actually. Um, and she does hold the family together. She does, yeah, she you does. Know, that each of them confide in her mm. in different ways, you know, and so mm. it was fascinating. Uh, it must have been a very hard figure, a very hard character to let go. But also, I, I felt sorry, not just for you, but for so many writers, I mean, I'm, I've written a book of short stories out last month, but I've written 14 other novels, and I've written 11. I mean, it's hard to believe that I was playing the Abbey last year with like 440 people every night in it, because it's just hard to believe those people gathering. So I've actually, you know, if, if a book comes out by me in a pandemic, it's not the end of the world, but to actually spend so long, I don't know how, how many years this, no, this novel took, because it looks like a, a true labour of love, was very frustrating to actually sort of suddenly have all your plans turned upside down for promoting the book in, for going out to the Ellen Hutchins Festival, for doing all those things that, that, that for suddenly have to find a new way for you and for New Ireland, Ireland, your publishers, to actually get this book out to another audience. Yeah, I mean, it was a series of, I suppose, in the great scheme of things, you know, a series of minor disappointments. But, mm. I mean, obviously, you dream about being a writer you know could such a thing happen and then you dream about writing a book and then you dream about bringing out a book and you dream about a launch and all of these things I mean in one way I suppose I have no frame of reference so it's all new anyway and I keep reminding myself you know the important thing is that you know the book exists and hopefully the book will have a life beyond um but I mean I I did a little piece for Totally Dublin and I talked about this you know if there's small, there's an element of, are we allowed to feel our disappointment in the light of the really awful things that are happening in the world and the economic pressures that people are under? And we have to put these things in context, but it's also okay to say, you know, yes, it is, of course, disappointing. I mean, I was, I was so looking forward to meeting people. That's what I was looking forward to, meeting other writers. And having been, you know, living in this bubble for like two to three years of, you know, I would do my work, but I never, I didn't tell anybody really I was writing this book. Mm-hmm. I mentioned it very casually to friends, but I didn't really give much details. It was very much, um, as you say, my my inner world, my secret world. So yeah, I was looking forward to finally getting out and putting on a nice pair of shoes and a nice dress and sort of you know showing it off. But um, the online experience has been very positive, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. The minute you know you think beforehand, you know, oh, this is just a screen, and but just talking to you now, the minute it starts, it does feel very. Real. Yeah. It does, yeah, it does. Yeah, the other thing with books, and, and we're coming to the end of our time, and, and it, it's been lovely to talk to you about this book because it book has fascinated me. And I think that uh, as somebody who's been a writer for like 45 years, basically, uh, I've learned a lot, and I've learned that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I mean, there are so many books I could mention gone over the years that were launched with enormous hype and massive mm-hmm. advances that are totally forgotten that that got lost under the weight of their own hype and sometimes certain books they creep out and they have such an impact on people 
and through word of mouth they sort of have lives that are, that are, that are very very long and very very full and I think that Acquired Tide is one of those books that people will be reading in 40-50 years time because it, it, it is so unique and what I think was nice about it is that when you set out you didn't think it was going to be published so you weren't trying to be like anybody else so it, it's a very very unique book and it's, I think it, it, it's, it's, it's a great achievement an achievement that you can truly be proud of and I, I think you've done justice to yourself as a writer but you've also done justice to a remarkable Irish woman who as I say for 200 years lay in an unmarked grave and never lived to see her her birthday so for me it it is a great achievement and it's been a real honour to talk to you uh, and a privilege so thank you very much indeed Marianne Lee. Thank you so much for having me Dermot thank you. Thank you for listening for more see leavesfestival.ie or dunamaze.ie Leaves on Air is funded by the Arts Office, Leash County Council, and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre. We look forward to presenting further podcasts over the months ahead. Dunamay's on Air will showcase artists and performers we are sure you'll love to hear from and learn more about. See dunamay's.ie for details.